please have a seat. Well, all right, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you this morning. I'm very glad that you're here. It is beautiful outside, is it not? Is it nice to have this kind of warm weather, sunny, not as humid? So let's begin with a vote. How many think we should take our chairs out to the front yard and have a church out there, right? Okay, okay. How many think, nope, I'm comfortable right here with the air conditioning. Who wants to stay? Okay. Uh, those outside, I think, won, but we're not going to do it. So I know the vote ultimately was for nothing. But if you wouldn't mind, as you're walking out and people at 1130 are walking in, Tell them we went outside to have church this morning, even though we didn't. Let's see if we can't. Yes, I'm asking you to lie this morning. That's okay. We'll kind of get through with that. Well, I'm glad that you're here this morning. I want to begin. I want to tell you the story. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Wimber, but I want to share a story about John Wimber's life. John Wimber, in the early 1960s, was the keyboardist for a group called the Paramours. I know some of you who are more mature in age might remember that group. You see how I put that, mature in age, rather than just old He seems to be responsible for bringing together Bobby Hatfield and Bill Medley to form the Righteous Brothers. And so I want to sing a Righteous Brothers song for you this morning to give you a taste. No, I'm just kidding. Mom, is that still your favorite group, the Righteous Brothers, right? Okay. He he was the writer and producer for the Righteous Brothers. And then in 1963, with absolutely no church background whatsoever, his parents didn't go to church, he never read the Bible, never those sorts of things, he was introduced to Jesus and fell in love with Jesus and converted to Christianity in 1963. And at that time, he began to attend a Quaker church. And also at the same time, he just started devouring the scriptures. I mean, just devouring and reading and reading and reading until one day he walked up to his Quaker pastor and asked, when do we get to do the stuff? To which he responded, what stuff? The stuff in the Bible. Like, I'm, I'm reading all the things that the church did, and when do we get to do that? When do we get to do the stuff? And the pastor tried to give a theological explanation as to why he had not seen the stuff. But, but what, happened for, uh, what happened for him was John Wimber went away just convinced No, I really do think, and just in his naivete, not knowing anything, he just thought to himself, what I'm reading in the Bible, in the New Testament church, I think is supposed to be happening among us. And so he went on, he began to start Bible studies just on his own. There had at one time 11 different Bible studies that had over 500 people involved, just on his own, just kind of going out and starting Bible studies and just consuming the scriptures and reading the scriptures and believing that what he read in the Bible was supposed to be how life was lived out here and now. It was supposed to be for us. And so what he did is he just committed himself to praying for everybody that was sick. Like he would just, if you were sick, he would just pray for you. Just put his hands on you and just pray for your healing in the name of Jesus. And John Wimber did that for eight months, never seeing a healing. Not one. For eight straight months, he didn't see a single healing, but he was just convinced this is supposed to work. This is what I read in the Bible. And so he just kept praying and praying and praying and praying for healing. And as I think about it, I think, man, I'd give it like maybe a week, right? After a week, if I'm praying for everybody, that would say like, well, maybe I'll just move on. But he was just so faithful for over eight months that, and I don't know why, maybe God just thought, I love that faith. I love that courage. Maybe he gave him some tests to see if he'd spend the, the, the continue on. Finally, in the eighth month, as he prayed, he began to see God do amazing, crazy, miraculous things. He began to see the answer to prayers in this crazy, miraculous way as he prayed and asked God for healing that God began to give healing. He later went on and with Peter Wagner went on to Fuller Theological Seminary and had what became a famous class called Signs and Wonders in which story after story of things that took place simply because in the end, by the way, he also went on to be one of the founders, leading founders of the Vineyard Movement. So when you see Vineyard Churches, that goes all the way back to to the 1960s and the movement that John Wimber kind of helped launch. It is that naivete and belief that when he read 
in the scriptures that that's how life is supposed to be. He accepted it as the norm. He believed that the same Holy Spirit that was at work in the church in the book of Acts was the exact same Holy Spirit that should be at work in the church today. And I wonder what it would look like for the Living Stones Church to read the book of Acts. And it's only 28 chapters, so let me just encourage you, you should do that. Like, even if you just took, like, a chapter a day, you'll be done with it by the end of the month. You'll be all right. But just, if you read the, that, what would happen if we read the book of Acts and accepted by faith that it was meant to be normative for us? What if we read the stories, not as a history lesson of what God used to do, but rather as a manual instruction book of what God wants to do? What if we read the stories about the New Testament church and instead of recounting them as sort of like our glory years, that they became in our minds instruction for what our future years are supposed to look like? What if we didn't read about Christians praying for people who were sick and seeing them healed in the past tense reality, but rather began to complain or just began to expect that God would begin to do those exact same things, that we would just do the stuff, the kingdom expanding stuff. Because when you read through the book of Acts, what you see is this amazing thing where you've got 11 guys, right? We're minus Judas, and he gets replaced. But you've got about 11 apostles who were meeting in Jerusalem with about 120 people. And those 11 apostles, then to be 12, and 120 people change the world. And it isn't because the 11 are so brilliant at organization. It isn't because they've got this organizational chart and the schedule and the structure. It's not because even the 120 people who gathered around them were so committed to the religious practices that God had given to them. It was because the Spirit of God was among them, and because the Spirit of God was among them, they were able to do crazy, amazing things. I'm wondering if, what if that same God was still on mission for us today, and His plan was to do this through a powerful force that he called church, and even for us in 2011, if it were through the Living Stones Church. But my concern is that we're so living our lives, so consumed with our own issues and our own agendas, that we don't even know that he has placed within us superhero-like abilities. I mean, what if we were really walking around with superpower abilities, or let me at least say it like this, supernatural abilities. Which means it's not in the natural, it's not like something that we can do on our own, but it takes the supernatural, God himself. What if he were trying to give to us supernatural abilities and powers, a force for good for the kingdom of God, and we didn't even know it? And so I just had, well, I mean, when was the last time you tried it? I mean, you just tried it, you know, I'm just, just to give it a shot to see if maybe this works. Just when was the last time you did the New Testament stuff? When was the last time you went to someone that you loved who had cancer and you boldly and powerfully in the name and authority of Jesus just prayed for healing? I mean, think about that for just a moment. What, what, just in your, when was the last I don't, I'm not talking about like your aunt has cancer before you went to bed and you're saying your goodnight prayers to Jesus. You know, please be with my aunt healer. I mean, and I'm not saying that God doesn't hear those things. I'm asking, no, I mean, when did you just go right on over to your aunt's house and you say, I just need to pray for you right now. And then you just sat her down on the couch, you put your arm on her back, your hand on her back, and you simply said, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking in the authority of that name that this cancer will be gone and that you'd receive healing. Like, when was the last time you just gave that a shot? You, you just tried that out. When was the last time you walked up to somebody who was blind and just prayed for them to see? When was the last time you saw somebody who was crippled in some particular way and you just prayed for their healing? When was the last time that you prayed with such fervency all of a sudden the house you're in started shaking and a tongue of fire landed on your head? When was the last time you tried to cast out a demon? Now, parents, I know if you've got little kids in your house, this might be a daily basis thing. 
I'm trying to cast those demons out all the time. When was the last time you just tried to present the gospel, not in your own eloquence or persuasion or because you have so many verses of the Bible memorized, but I mean you just presented the gospel in a way that was true to your personality, but it contained the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, what I'm wondering is maybe we're not seeing those things because we're not trying those things. Maybe it's what James says in the book of James that we have not because we ask not. That it isn't because God has retired from that business. It's because we don't trust him enough or walk around at least with enough naivete or confidence to believe he can actually do those things still. Maybe we don't see those things not because somehow God says we don't need those things anymore to change 46613, 46614, and the 42,500 people that live all around us, but maybe we don't see those sorts of things because somehow generation after generation we've convinced ourselves that we shouldn't expect those things any longer. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just guessing that most of us, in answer to this question, would probably say, well, I can't even remember the last time I tried any of those sorts of things. But what if you did... And you did it for eight months and didn't see anything. Would we give up? Would we kind of, well, I guess it didn't work or man, you know, what? Or would we still persevere and have enough faith and trust and confidence, even in those moments where we were hoping and expecting and believing and it didn't? And we have those stories, don't we? We all have those stories of hope and belief and prayer and faith. And But what if even pursuing even further, would we have maybe the reason, require training? and patience, and commitment. I mean, the truth is this. The apostles didn't wake up one day and they were just pros at this, right? I mean, what did the apostles do? They hung out in the school of Jesus for over three years. They watched Jesus for over three years, what he did, what he said, the power that he had from his father, and Jesus turns and gives that same power to them. And when they launch out, they didn't do it with perfection either, right? I mean, they were learning as they went, and sometimes it worked. You know, sometimes it didn't work. One day, the disciples met a a boy who was demonized, and they were trying to cast out that demon, and it didn't work, and Jesus shows up, and he has to do it. And he turns to his disciples and says, oh, you have little faith, and I'm just kind of that sigh of, I wish you could figure this out. I mean, they went through this school, too, of of training. It, It didn't always work for them. What if the kingdom stuff looks more like Peter Parker fumbling around to figure out he has power residing within him that makes him Spider-Man? Did you see the movie? At least the Tobey Maguire one. Did you see the movie Spider-Man? I mean, in it, you remember the storyline is, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry if this is like uh, ruining the, right? Spoiler alert. You know, plug your ears. If you haven't seen Spider-Man yet, who hasn't seen Spider-Man? He gets bit by a spider. Somehow it's a magic spider. Now he's got powers. I don't quite get how it, how it happens. But he wakes up one morning. Peter Parker wakes up, and he normally wears glasses, big thick glasses, but he notices that he can see 2020. He puts on his glasses, and now everything's all fuzzy because he doesn't need glasses. How in the world does that happen? Because of a spider. He looks in the mirror in his 2020 vision. All of a sudden, he's got all these muscles, and he's like, this isn't the scrawny kid I was just yesterday. And he doesn't know what's going on yet. He's trying to figure out what in the world is going on. But, of course, when he sees all the muscles, he's okay. He's not complaining. So next thing you know, he's at school, and he has this encounter with the bully in the school, and they get in this huge fight. I don't know if you remember the scene where he's in this fight, and all of a sudden, everything's in slow motion. He can see this, the punches coming, and he's jumping, doing backflips, and he's Spider-Man, and he's got all these powers, and he doesn't even know it. And it began because he had this little incident in the cafeteria where, like, webs shot out of his... I mean, he has no idea. He's fumbling through trying to figure out who he is and what his identity is because he doesn't know. But he has within him a power that he's trying to figure out how to use for good. And so I want you to see this clip from the movie Spider-Man where he's just kind of discovering and fumbling forward with all the power that he seems to have because of this magic spider. Take a look at this.
Shazam! Go! Go! Go, Web, go! Spider-Man, I, I wonder if that's more of what it's like, knowing that there is power available to us, supernatural power available because of the Holy Spirit, and then it's stumbling forward, trusting, taking risks, and I'm wondering if maybe that might be where we're at. My guess is it's time for the Living Stones Church to wake up to the reality of its God-given power and intention. And it's time for us as a church to embrace all that God has made available to and for us to use for His kingdom purposes. I think it's time for the Living Stones Church to put faith and boldness and courage and strength on and take it to Satan and his demonic realm because the little kids at Miami Hills don't need just another well-intended church around the corner to try to make their life easier for the summer. What they need is a fully empowered church that looks like Jesus to speak healing into their little hearts. That Riley High School doesn't need a church eight blocks away who wishes them well. What they need is a church who bravely enters into the darkness that has kept students from seeing the light and speak with boldness and confidence, let there be light. That there's far too much poverty, despair, and addictions on the south side of South Bend for a church to simply hand out carnations and candy and hope they might show up at a 9.30 and 11.30 service. What it needs is a church who goes right into the midst of poverty and speaks a revelation of God that removes that spirit of poverty. It needs a church that will not be afraid of getting a little dirty and walk right into the despair and speak boldly for hope. And it needs a church that isn't afraid of addictions or those who are struggling through it because it knows it possesses a name that trumps whatever addiction is at its disposal. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm wondering if God intended for us to live like out on a 10 on the power Richter scale, but we've settled for a 2.3. And I'm wondering if we've become content with far less than what God ever intended. And I understand the reasons for it being two major ones. One is just a lack of knowledge. We just don't even know. Like, you just get so used to doing the same thing, you don't even realize, even as you're reading the stories, that maybe that's what we're supposed to be about. Maybe when we pray, we're supposed to pray with that kind of confidence and in that name. And we don't even imagine the faith that we could have in those sorts of things. But number two, there's fear involved. And this I understand completely. There's fear anytime you want to move forward in terms of advancing the kingdom of God. Fear for, on several levels. One is just the fear of failure. Like, what if you do go to your aunt's house and you pray boldly in the name of Jesus for her cancer to be healed and it doesn't work out? Wouldn't that be embarrassing for God? And then you feel like I kind of defend God. And so you kind of put all the qualifiers. I mean, if it be thy will, I mean, if you're really okay with it. I mean, if you don't, we totally understand. But we're, I mean, we just kind of, if, if you don't mind. And, and so we don't want to embarrass God. And honestly, we don't want to embarrass ourselves. And so sometimes fear paralyzes us from taking then what that fear of risk. What if God doesn't show up? But here's what you'll find over and over again in the Bible. 
if you're only willing to live in the natural, what you naturally have, there's no reason for the Holy Spirit to show up. I mean, you don't need the Holy Spirit to live your life in the natural. You don't. The only time you need the Holy Spirit is if you're going to take that step to risk living in the supernatural. And when you do that, you need to know, and I, you need to know up front, there'll be great risk, and there could be failure, and there could be embarrassment, but it seems that God typically honors those who are willing to step out on such a limb that they know they can't come back until he shows up. I mean, that typically seems to be when God rewards people and answers their prayers and when he extends healings, it's usually for people who stepped out to such a point where they know they can't come back until God shows up. And unless we're willing to step in those places of risk that we can only survive there or come back from there from the Holy Spirit, then that seems to be when he shows up. And see, there's something, and see, I love that story of David and Goliath because David kind of has that very faith-bold View, right? I mean, I read this story the other day and it just convicted me all over again. You've got this giant of a Philistine named Goliath. I mean, he just towers over everybody. And every day he walks out and he just taunts Israel and Israel's God. Just taunts them. Just, come on, send somebody out. And, and the Israelite army is just shaking in their boots and they're all scared and nervous. And this little shepherd boy, David, who is smaller than everybody else, at least at this time, he sees that. But what he doesn't see is the size of Goliath. What his eyes are focused on is the size of his God. And he knows because of the size of his God, this giant, no matter what a giant he is, is no match. And so he's just like, I'll go out there and take it. And so, you know, Saul puts the armor on David. It's way too big and oversized. And David's like, I can't, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And so he just goes out with a little slingshot and some rocks and kills Goliath and chops off his head. And do you know why? Because of this bold, courageous faith where he was willing to go where he knows the only way he's coming back is if God shows up. See, David knows in the natural he can't take on Goliath, but he's not wanting to live in the natural. He wants to live in the supernatural. And he steps out and risks and trusts God to go out and that God will bring him back. And I know this was to be a message in Ephesians, and so I'm going to go there right now. And so that's why I think the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, as he's praying for the church, listen to these words, beginning verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now listen to this. May you receive the spirit of wisdom and knowledge so that you might know God better. And why is this important? Because the more you know God, the more you will trust God, the more you will put your complete faith. It won't be that big of a deal to trust God to do this and to this, and you have this thing going on in your life, and this issue going on in your marriage, and you're encountering this at work. You will not have any problem facing that head on in a supernatural way, because you will know God better. You'll have a greater vision of God himself. Verse 18, I also pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now this is verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. What? What? See, that our eyes would be able to see, our hearts would be able to know in such a way that we would understand this power. And what kind of power? What could you compare it to? Nothing. It's an incomparable power for those of us who believe. And he goes on to say, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that has been given not only in the present age but also in one that come now here is this all language in the greek that's saying this is how this is how much authority Jesus has he has the name that is above every name there is no name that is above the name of Jesus. 
no power, no authority, no principality, no dominion, no cancer. You, you can name it. You can name whatever addiction. You can name whatever disease. That name does not have near as much authority as the name of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that's who we belong to. And it's because we belong to him. Because those of us who believe, we have received this incomparable power. Now he goes on to say, verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For what? For the church. Who's the church? You're the church. He placed everything under his feet for the church. Now listen to this. Verse 23 which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Isn't that a crazy talk? I mean, I think Paul's just crazy talk here. He says about the church, we are the fullness of Jesus, who fills everything in every way. We, the Living Stones Church that gathers here together at 718 East Dumber Avenue, we are the fullness of Jesus, that our life together looks like Jesus, the fullness of Jesus, that one who fills everything in every way. Isn't that crazy talk? It's crazy talk, but I think if we'll believe it and just live in it, we might see things that we've never seen before, that we might grasp the power available to us that we've never experienced before because what's happening, at least for Paul in the city of Ephesus, let me give you some background. The Ephesian Christians, just for a moment, let's put ourselves in their shoes. They are living in the largest city and at the time what's called Asia Minor. What Asia Minor is today is the country of Turkey. So if you were to go to Turkey, you'd be going to the ancient area of Asia Minor. And in that area, it was one of the largest cities in Asia Minor. It had about 250,000 people who lived in it. How many people live in Michiana? About 250,000. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of the size of the Michiana area is what we're looking at in terms of this, the city of Ephesus. And because Ephesus was so large, it was such a trading center, there was lots of different philosophies and there's lots of different religions and there's lots of different ideas all around. It was a Roman city and culturally you could find anything you want, much like you can today. But most importantly, it housed one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, right? And so I got to, here's a picture of the ruins of the Temple of Artemis. And so imagine being that small group of Christians in the city of Ephesus in the midst of 250,000 people who did not think like you, did not have your thoughts or your beliefs, were not convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. And on top of that, you are in the shadow of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. The problem for the Christians in Ephesus is as you look at it, just from a human point of view, just from the natural, you feel so minuscule, so tiny, and you are numerically insignificant. It looks like you would quickly be overpowered by the vast majority of everything else that exists. And such a situation could have the possibility to really discourage or depress you. You might think to yourself, there's nothing we can do. I mean, we are so outnumbered in this. You could be paralyzed in an action. You might be tempted to simply huddle together in a holy enclave and let's just pray for Jesus to come back quickly to take us out of this feeble and frail condition. You might be tempted, well, maybe we can at least put on a good show for an hour and 15 minutes and hope that people will come back the next week. But that isn't what happens at all. In fact, if you go and you read Acts chapter 19, what you see is this tiny little group of people, they didn't huddle together in some holy enclave hoping Jesus returns. They began to take their city by storm. Paul comes marching in, and for three months, he preaches boldly in all the synagogues he could find that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah and Savior of the world. And then he and a few others, they would go into institutions of learning, like the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and they would just talk about the Word of God. And this went on for two years. They just boldly proclaimed the gospel. 
And it tells us in Acts 19 that God was doing such crazy, amazing things that even handkerchiefs and aprons that Paul had touched and given to other people would heal them from their, de- from their diseases and cast out demons. And then you got seven sons of Sceva. And they're not Christians. They're Jewish uh, sons of Sceva. And they just hear about Paul and they hear about Jesus. And they see the demons being cast out. So they go walking around. They're trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. And you know what happens to them? The demons turn around and they say, well, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but we don't know you. And it says in the scriptures that they beat them down so bad that they left naked and bloody. Wouldn't that be a scene? And it says in the end, in Acts 19, verse 17, after this incident, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And wouldn't that be awesome if 42,500 people on the south side of South Bend held the name of the Lord Jesus in high honor? I mean, even if they never confessed him as Lord that they at least knew that there was power at work among us, which seemed to reveal that there was a God among us who was alive and well and doing crazy, amazing things. And then what happened next is many who practiced sorcery repented, and they burned their scrolls, and the Bible tells us it was worth a buttload of money. It doesn't say buttload, but that's what it was. I mean, oh, oh, and then there's this one time, there was this riot that broke out in the stadium, right? Because... uh, they thought that the Temple of Artemis was going to be uh, financially hurt by it. So what you see here, this is the stadium that they dragged Paul in, and a riot broke out that they're going to riot. And the next picture here, you could see a larger shot. You see this way? I mean, this is probably the, the road that they dragged Paul on into the stadium, and the, the riot took place. And why? Because this little, tiny, minuscule group of insignificant, numerically people had such faith and confidence in Jesus that they were able to do crazy, amazing things. And even though they were greatly outnumbered, they were getting a taste of the power that is available to them. And this is what Paul prays for them in, in Ephesians 1, that you might know the power, the incomparable power that's at work for those who believe. They were like Peter Parker, discovering the reality of their supernatural powers. And Paul's trying to encourage them in this and to tell them that God wants to use them for amazing things. Now is not the time to cower in the despair of your size. Now is the time to walk in the size and power of your God the one who is putting everything under Jesus' feet. But for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so if you just begin in the very beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to encourage you to go home and read it just for time's sake. Uh, We won't this morning. But if you just start reading with chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter uh, verse 14, what you'll see is Paul's just trying to encourage them. This is who you are. You've been chosen. You've been adopted as children of God. Do you think you can really be children of God and Him not give to you what belongs to you by way of inheritance? You've been chosen. And what He wants them to do, He wants to live out this reality of who they are. It's sort of like, in some sense, do you remember in Spider-Man, again, where Peter Parker's uncle gives him the, the big speech? Remember the speech? With much power comes what? Responsibility. He stole that right from Ephesians. Well, not really, but I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what Paul's trying to say. This is who you are, and this is what you have. Now go live like it. God has given us great power because of his spirit. We don't want to keep that hidden. We don't want to ignore that. We don't want to grieve that. We don't want to, right? We want to live everything out that God has given us because he's on mission. God is on mission. Do you know he loves, crazy in love with everybody at Miami Hills Apartments? I mean, more than anyone here could ever possibly love them. I mean, he's just crazy in love with them. But because he loves them, he's on mission to reach every single one of them that they might know that they matter to him and he is crazy love. You know how he's going to do that? Through the Living Stones Church. And it won't be because we're so good 
or because we're so talented or so persuasive, or right, or we've got enough money, or we've memorized enough Bible verses. It will simply be because we're willing to take a step of faith and risk looking foolish. It's because we're going to be willing to go where we know we cannot go just naturally, that we're going to need supernatural power to come in. See, this is what it means to take those, step, those risks of faith. Because I think what God wants to do is to tell every student at Riley High School that he is crazy in love with them. You know how he's going to do that? Through the Living Stones Church. And he'll use others too. I don't mean to say we're it. I mean, just he'll use others as well. You know how that's going to happen? By taking risks. By, by daring to do things that look kind of foolish and have great risk involved. But we'll go there because we know once, once we're there, the spirit is at work in terms of the supernatural. And you've got a neighbor that maybe lives on Irvington right next to you. Or maybe you've got a neighbor that lives on Ewing next to you. Or maybe it's somewhere you work over here on Ireland. I mean, I don't know wherever you're at. But wherever you're at, you're going to be willing because you're going to have new eyes to see the power available to you by the Spirit to take a step of faith and to risk in such a way where you know, I can't come back unless the Spirit shows up. And when you do that, what we see over and over again is he steps out. He shows up. And so in it, even if you just have to accept it by faith right now, I want to encourage you just to try it. Just do the stuff. Just do the kingdom stuff and see what happens. And even if this week it's rough, try again next week. Even if this month is rough, try it again next month. I don't know, maybe God wants to test us in such a way or build on us enough confidence or maybe enough dependency on him. Maybe it will be several months. Maybe it could be eight months. I don't know, maybe it be like John Wimber's story. But I just think if we'll continue to be kingdom risk takers, to pray for the sick boldly, no qualifiers, no fear, right there, pray in the name and authority of Jesus for healing. And if we begin to pray and expect the supernatural, if we're willing to step out in those places and corporately as his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I know when it comes to the numbers around us, we might be tempted to feel small and insignificant. We only have 308 tan chairs told. But it's not about us. It's about him. And so in that, we want to receive everything that God has to offer. And in it, we want to do the kingdom stuff. We want to pray bold prayers. We just want to ask God, would you let us own Miami Hills Apartments? We, we want to ask God for revival in Riley High School. We want to ask God to end all drug trafficking on the south side of South Bend. We want to pray with authority and power that God's kingdom will advance everywhere we proclaim it. That we are his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I just don't picture a Jesus as get flustered by the size of an enemy. I don't see him shrugging his shoulders and hoping to do something about someone's illness. I don't ever see him cower in the face of an evil spirit. Well, we are the G, that Jesus, living, worshiping, and serving here on the south side of South Bend. I think you have supernatural power available to you. My prayer is that you will realize it and live it out for his glory. Let's stand, let's pray, and ask for that. Father, we come and we are asking that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. And we're praying that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, that we might know the hope to which you've called us and the riches of the glorious inheritance that we have and also the incomparably great power that he has that's at work in us who believe. We recognize that power is like the working of his mighty strength. 
That same strength that happened when, he, when you raised Jesus from the dead and you seated him right next to your right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, that you've given him every title that can be given, not only in this age but the one to come. And you've placed everything under his feet and you made him head over everything for us, the body and the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So, Father, we ask this morning that you would give our eyes the ability to see the supernatural empowerment you intend for us to have. And may we use it for your glory and the one who sits at your right hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, we're going to continue to worship God, and we're going to do it through this thing we call offering. And I think, as Sam said, like there's this power that can be at work in us. But sometimes to access that power, we have to let go of the things, the powers that hold on to us. An offering is one of those moments where we can say, God, we love you and trust your power in our life enough that we can believe that when we give this money for the good of the church and the good of the community around us, that, that others can be blessed. So let's just pray and ask God to accept our offering this morning. God in heaven, we thank you that we can come together as a body, the body of your son Jesus, to bless others in this place and around us. God, accept our offering this morning, and may it praise you and give you glory. We pray in his name. Amen. Before we go, if you all would stand one more time, and as we sing this song that uh, Michelle wrote, this awesome song about what it means to be part of God's, the mystery of, of God's working on earth through the church. <laughs> 